The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. As the father of four daughters, I have had many opportunities to tell stories. And sometimes when a daughter asks me to make up a story on the spot, I might tease her by saying something like this. There once was a little girl named Eden, and she was happy. The end. (laughs) And then my daughter, who's laughing right now, will say, come on, Dad, tell me a story. That's not a story. She knows even at a young age that a, a satisfying story requires a good story arc that has some kind of conflict in it, some kind of problem to solve some kind of difficulty to overcome. So in many stories, a villain embodies evil, like Darth Vader or Lord Voldemort or Sauron or the White Witch. And in many stories, a hero defeats a villain. I call those kind of stories dragon-slaying stories. They're very satisfying. But there's another layer I want to consider this morning about good stories. The best storytellers design stories so that there's more going on than a simple story arc that goes something like this. The things are swell, there's a problem, there's a solution, and things are swell again. The best storytellers also weave in themes that they develop throughout the story, themes like courage and friendship, sacrifice, integrity, love. The best storytellers know how to design a story so that themes develop in a satisfying way, often by book-ending themes that are prominent at the story's beginning and end. And those themes often intertwine. That is, it's hard to talk about one of them in an isolated way because it's inseparably connected to other themes. How can you talk about sacrifice in the Lord of the Rings without also talking about courage and friendship? They're intertwined. Now, in this sermon, I plan to do something unusual. Rather than explain and apply a small passage of Scripture, my sermon text is the whole Bible. So let's begin the scripture reading. Notice, okay. So, um, it's obviously not possible to explain and apply the entire Bible in detail in one sermon. So what I'm going to do is treat the Bible as one big story with one main author. God brilliantly designed the big story of the Bible with a story arc. We could call it like, uh, something like this. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the story arc. And as a brilliant author who also designed human history with purposeful sovereignty, God has woven in a lot of themes into this grand story. In this sermon, I'd like to trace two of those intertwining themes, the temple and light. The title of this sermon is The Temple and light in the Bible's storyline. Now, this is the first of a five-part Advent series 
about light in the Bible storyline. This sermon surveys the whole Bible to show the basic framework of this theme. And then the next four sermons will focus on specific passages about light. So here's the plan. Next week on December 4, John Nowlin will preach on Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. On December 11, Sam Crabtree will preach on John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. On December 18, Stephen Lee will preach on how the theme of light culminates in Revelation 21. And on Christmas morning, Stephen Lee will preach on John 1, 9 through 13 to celebrate God the Son becoming a man as the true light coming into the world. In this sermon, I get to show you the big picture. I'll proceed by answering two questions. Question one, how do the intertwining themes of the temple and light develop in the Bible's storyline? And then question two, what realities do the intertwining themes of the temple and light picture? So let's start with question one. How do the intertwining themes of the temple and light develop in the Bible storyline? And let's trace these unfolding themes under the four headings, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So I'll start with creation. Please open your Bible to the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1. Genesis 1. And let's read the first two paragraphs of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness, darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now skip down to verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the sun and the lesser light to rule the night, the moon, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. I'll stop there. So God created light. That's how the story begins. Let there be light. And Psalm 104 exclaims that God covers himself with light. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with, a, with light as with a garment. Covering yourself with light. First John says that God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Light pictures God's presence. And so does the concept of a temple. The temple theme starts with the Garden of Eden right here at the beginning of the Bible's storyline. A temple, by definition, is where humans meet God. And it's where God lives with his people. 
So that's the, the temple and light theme at creation. Next is fall. Creation, fall. This is when Adam and Eve first sin. When God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, the earth is his dwelling place. So before the fall, God regularly fellowships with Adam and Eve. From the point of the fall onward, God's dwelling place is associated with heaven, and he comes down to earth. The Garden of Eden, before the fall, is the first temple. It's the temple garden, a divine sanctuary. It's where humans first meet God. There are all sorts of parallels between the Garden of Eden and Israel's tabernacle and temple. I'll mention those in a moment, some of them. At the fall, Adam, the covenant representative of mankind, sinned and thus plunged mankind into the curse of darkness, a curse of darkness. Psalm 107 describes those apart from God as in darkness, in darkness. They need God to bring them, quote, out of darkness, end quote, Psalm 107. God says that the wicked, in Psalm 82, the wicked walk about in darkness. Proverbs 2.13 says they walk about in the ways of darkness. So a sad result of the fall is that Satan, the god of this world, has blinded, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So that's how the themes of temple and light are part of the beginning of the Bible's storyline, creation and fall. And that sets us up for the happy turning point in the story, redemption. The Bible says a lot about the temple and light at this part of the story. So I'll share just some highlights. God says that darkness and light are part of his brilliant plan. Isaiah 45, God says through Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God in his purposeful sovereignty has a plan for darkness that will glorify himself. Darkness and light picture judgment and salvation. God got glory for himself when he delivered his enslaved people from Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In the ninth plague, according to Exodus 10, God caused darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. There was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then later in that story, this is Exodus 13, the Lord went before his people by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And then later the Lord instructed his people to install lamps for light in the tabernacle and to keep the light burning regularly. The tabernacle is an important part of how the temple theme develops. So let's, let's trace the temple theme as it develops after the Garden of Eden. God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle. Right here. All right, so here's the entrance. Uh, you come in. Here's the, the, uh, where you make burnt offerings. Here's the big bird bath. It looks like, uh, it looks like a massive bird bath. For, it's a cleaning bowl. Uh, it's a bronze basin. And behind that is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent in the shape of a large rectangle. So it's about 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. And the tent has two rooms. This is room number one. That's room number two. Now, 
when you enter the, the tabernacle, the first room is called the holy place. And you enter through a large outer veil. You see directly in front of you at the other end of the altar, uh, other end of the room, this, this altar for, uh, of incense. On your left is a beautiful burning golden lampstand. There's a light theme. On your right is the table for bread. But what about that room in the back? It's shaped like a cube. It's a perfect 15-foot cube. Remember that. that. That'll be important later. So this is called the most holy place or the holy of holies, and it housed the Ark of the Covenant. This was God's throne room, and only the high priest entered this room once per year to make atonement for the people. So when priests served in the holy place, a large barrier kept them from seeing into the most holy place. It wasn't drywall or a brick wall. It was, what's pictured right here, the inner veil. The veil protected Israel from the brightness of God's glory consuming them. The veil made it possible for God in his white-hot holiness to dwell with his unholy people. On this, you can see sort of that there are cherubim woven into the curtain. So that's uh, something that Exodus twenty six thirty one says God tells Israelites to do, to weave cherubim into this veil. And that's just one of the clues that signals that the most holy place parallels the Garden of Eden. Do you recall what God did after he expelled Adam and Eve from the garden? Very end of, of Genesis 3 says this, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In a similar way here, the cherubim woven into the inner veil symbolizes that sinful humans can't enter this temple either. It's it's like a big hand that warns, you shall not pass. That's, that's, That's what it's saying symbolically. So God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle. God also dwelled with his people in the temple that Solomon built. This was the first temple in Jerusalem, and it was magnificent. The dimensions double those of the tabernacle. So in the tabernacle, it was uh, 45 feet by 15. Here, it's double that. So uh, this, instead of a 15-foot cube, the most holy place is a 30-foot cube. The most holy place in this temple housed two elaborate gold cherubim. And those surrounded the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the temple's a big theme when you, when you read the Old Testament over and over and over. To go up to Jerusalem, it's on a mountain, to go up to Jerusalem was to go where God lived. So it devastated Israel when the Babylonians demolished this temple, when they destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The beginning of the book of Ezekiel details how the glory of God departed this temple. And when Israel sank so low that they repeatedly forsook God and his covenant, God left the temple. Later, God's glory cloud did not fill the temple that Zerubbabel built. After the Babylonian captivity, it took about 20 years for a group of Jews to slowly rebuild the temple. Haggai And Zechariah exhorted the people to finish the job. But the temple, this one, was pitiful compared to Solomon's magnificent temple. Remember that bright light 
is associated with the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and the first temple, but not with this temple. God's glory cloud did not fill this temple. And this temple began a period of time called Second Temple Judaism. This is the Second Temple. Second Temple Judaism. It refers to Jewish history and literature from the time that Zerubbabel completed this Second Temple, about 516 B.C., to when the Romans destroyed Herod's temple in AD 70. So let me show you Herod's temple. God's glory cloud did not fill the temple that Herod built either. King Herod took several decades to rebuild the temple to rival Solomon's temple in its grandeur. Again, bright light is associated with the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and the first temple, but not with this temple. God's glory cloud did not fill this temple. Zechariah the priest, father of John the Baptist, was inside this temple when he burned incense at the golden altar in the holy place. Luke 1.9 records that. At least six significant events in Jesus' life involve this temple. One, Jesus, who is God, tabernacles among humans. We heard it earlier in this service. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt, you could translate that, tabernacled among us. Number two, Jesus visited this temple complex as a boy. Number three, Jesus judged the temple at the beginning and end of his earthly ministry. Number four, Satan tempted Jesus to jump off the temple mount. Number five, Jesus claimed that his body is the temple. John 2, 18 to 22. And number six, when Jesus was on the cross, when he was on the cross, he could likely turn to his left and look up and see the back of the temple. So when, he's, when he died on the cross, do you remember what happened inside the temple? The veil between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, And that torn veil pictures what Jesus' death accomplished. The massive curtain blocked access to God and Jesus removed the barrier. That veil, that curtain, was the type or shadow. Christ's body was the antitype or the reality that the shadow anticipated. The only way to approach God was to go through the veil. And now that veil's torn. And the only way for us to approach God is through Jesus. Jesus' death makes it possible for people to go directly into God's presence. So the, the temple rituals And the Mosaic Law Covenant are now obsolete. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our priest. And since the themes of the temple and light are so intertwined, are you surprised that Jesus is not only the true temple? He's also the true light. Jesus fulfills what Isaiah prophesies, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jesus is the true light, John 1-9. He proclaims, I am the light of the world. And shining light pictures conversion. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Paul wrote that, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He also wrote this in Colossians 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his, of his beloved son. Shining light pictures conversion. And now walking in light pictures becoming more holy. Progressive sanctification is what we call it. Listen to 1 John. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Back to the temple theme. So Jesus is the true temple. And now the church, the people of God, now the church is God's temple. Four passages are most significant here. I'd love to read them all and explain them all. I'll just give you the references. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. I summarize this in one sentence. Because the church is God's temple, the church must be unified and pure. And not only is the church collectively God's temple, now an individual Christian is the Holy Spirit's temple. Paul rhetorically asks, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're a Christian, then your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And back to the light theme. Light for those in darkness pictures God's people spreading the good news to the nations. God prophesies through Isaiah, Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul and Barnabas cite that passage to support their mission to take the good news to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 46. God sent Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's Acts twenty six eighteen. And as we heard last week in the sermon on Philippians 2, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, God's people shine as lights in the world. We shine as lights. And now King Jesus is clothed in bright white with eyes like fire. In Revelation 1, John sees the risen and ascended and reigning King Jesus. This is what he's like right now. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his face is like the sun shining in full strength. King Jesus is now in his heavenly temple. The heavenly temple is prominent in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. It's a setting for the drama that plays out in Revelation 4 through 20 before the end of the story. So now let's consider the end of the story. Creation, fall, redemption, and what's next? Consummation. Consummation. God will dwell with his people in the new temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Now, Christians interpret this passage in several different ways. 
I think New Testament scholar Greg Beal makes a convincing case that the temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48 figuratively presents a real heavenly non-structural end-time temple that God will establish on earth. That might make some of your head spin, raise lots of questions, ask Stephen Lee later. I'll say this, uh, at minimum, Christians should be able to agree that the new temple symbolizes God's presence with his people in the future. I think we can all agree on that. And that's gloriously clear in Revelation 21. I invite you to turn your Bible to Revelation 21. I want you to see this. The very end of the story. Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21 begins like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so there's this massive new city. What are the dimensions of this city? Drop down to verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The city is a perfect cube. Huh. What is the only other cube in the Bible? It's Israel's tabernacle and temple. And the the cubes in Israel's tabernacle and Israel's temple and here in Revelation 21, they're each overlaid with gold. Huh. What do we make of all this symbolism? Well, here's the point. There's no longer a small section of the earth that's the most holy place, a 15-foot cube or a 30-foot cube. Now, the entire city is God's temple. More specifically, look down at verse 22, and this is where the temple theme culminates. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is why Jenny and I named our fourth daughter Eden Celeste. Her name is a biblical theology of the temple from the Garden of Eden to the celestial city. It's a beautiful theme. And God brilliantly designed this temple theme to progress through the Bible storyline to climax in Jesus and to culminate and consummate right here in the new heaven, new earth, in the new Jerusalem, when the entire new earth is God's temple. And the themes of both the temple and light culminate here together. You're in Revelation 21, 22. Look at the next sentence, verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And skip down to 22.5. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This fulfills Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. This is awesome. Don't let anyone tell you the Bible's boring. (laughs) So tracing God-designed themes through the Bible is one of our joys as students of Scripture. 
We want to better know God and his ways. Tracing themes is a way to do that. But we don't just do this to have a really cool Bible study. Let's see how this helps us better understand reality. So question two, what realities do the intertwining themes of the temple and light picture? What realities? At least six. There are more. I'm going to mention six realities. Reality number one, the temple and light picture God's holiness and his undeserved kindness. His holiness and his undeserved kindness. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, First John says. God dwells in unapproachable light, First Timothy 6. The Israelites could not even enter the most holy place in the temple without dying. We can't approach God in his full display of light, just like we can't get too close to the sun without it incinerating us. We can hardly look straight into the sun without it hurting our eyes. But God graciously, graciously takes the initiative to reveal himself to us. That's the light theme. And to dwell with us. That's the temple theme. This is God's undeserved kindness. He dwells with his sinful people in the most holy place. And bright light is associated with the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and temple. That's reality number one. Reality number two, the temple and light picture our massive problem. Our massive problem. Our greatest problem is our sin. We are separated from the holy God because of our sin. That's the temple theme. We're in the darkness because of our sin. There's the light theme. And if we remain in our sins, God will banish us from his presence forever into what Jesus called the outer darkness. When Jesus died for sinners, Matthew 27 records, there was darkness over all the land. The dark sky pictured that he was propitiating the wrath of God against the sins of his people for those three hours on the cross. When God saves us, he dwells with us and shines light into our darkness. That's why 2 Samuel 22 says, You are our lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That's reality number two. Reality number three, the temple and light picture the glory of God the Son when he took on flesh. The glory of God the Son when he took on flesh. One more time, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible this time to John 1. John chapter 1. The prologue to the Gospel of John intertwines the themes of light and temple. Let's just read again first 14 verses. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And this alludes obviously to Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning God created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 9 says that Jesus is the true light. Verse 14 says he dwelt or tabernacled among us. So right here in this passage, Jesus is the true light and the true temple. God the Son became flesh. That is, he became human. That's what we're celebrating during this Advent season. So this is why we're tracing the theme of the temple and light in the Bible storyline. We're tracing those themes because they climax right here. When God the Son became flesh and lived and died and rose again for sinners. That's reality number three. Here's reality number four. The temple and light picture why we should turn from our sins and trust Jesus. Why we should turn from our sins and trust Jesus. We should repent and trust Jesus so that God will dwell with us. That's the temple theme. We'll avoid being banished from his presence. And so that we'll walk in the light. That's the light theme. We'll escape darkness. Judgment day is coming. Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Isaiah 50, if you're walking in the darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. That's God's word to you. Jeremiah 13, give glory to the Lord your God before it's too late. Acknowledge him before he brings darkness upon you, causing you to stumble and fall on the darkening mountains. For then when you look for light, you will find only terrible darkness and gloom. Friend, if you are in the darkness, if you are not turning from your sins and clinging to Jesus as your Savior, as your Master, then what is keeping you from coming to Jesus? Does this word describe you? Jesus said this in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. I've talked to a lot of people who've told me that the reason they reject Christianity, they reject Jesus, they don't come to Jesus, is various intellectual objections to Christianity. In my experience, that's often a smokescreen for the underlying reason, which is you don't want someone else telling you what to do. You don't want someone else telling you not to sleep around. You don't want someone else telling you what it means to be a man or a woman. You don't want someone else telling you not to get drunk. 
You don't want someone else telling you what to do with your money and your stuff. You don't want to, you don't want to submit to the authority of King Jesus. But that's exactly what you must do in order to escape the darkness and flee from the wrath to come. And Jesus warmly invites you to come to the light. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's an invitation to you, friends. That's reality number four. Here's reality number five. The temple and light picture how we, church, how we should live. The temple and light picture how we should live. So here's a very practical example about sex outside of marriage, the marriage of one man and one woman. So under the old covenant, only the high priest could enter the most holy place and only once a year. Under the new covenant, the individual body of a Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God himself. That's amazing. And Paul's main argument in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, is that you should glorify God with your body by not committing sexual immorality. And one reason he gives for why you should not have immoral sex is that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's unthinkable to commit sexual immorality in the most holy place. But now, your body is the most holy place. So don't defile it. Keep it sacred because it's sacred space. And light also pictures how God's people live righteously. You got the temple theme and here's light. Listen to Proverbs 4. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. So light should characterize how we live. Children, children, light should symbolize how you live, how you obey your mom and dad, how you treat your siblings. You should live as light. Teens, Light should characterize how you live, how you obey your parents in everything. That's what Colossians 3.20 says. How you use screens, how you love the truth, how you reject worldly ways of thinking and acting. Light should characterize you. Parents, light should characterize how you live, how you intentionally love and lead your children at home with consistent discipline and God-honoring wisdom and Christian instruction, Ephesians 6, 4. Husbands, light should characterize how you live, how you love your wife as Christ does the church, Ephesians 5, 25. Wives, light should characterize how you live, how you submit to or gladly follow and respect your husband as to the Lord, Ephesians 5, 22, 24, 33. Now, some of us may be tempted to think we should sort of hide what God says about husbands and wives in the Bible because it's not winsome. It's not attractive to the world. But living according to God's design is letting your light shine. 
Note the serious purpose statement at the end of this sentence in Titus 2. Older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. For what purpose? That the word of God may not be reviled. So I invite you in the words of Isaiah 2.5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Remember what, Matthew, what uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Paul exhorts in Romans 13, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He asks in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? He says in Ephesians 5, at one time you were darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's reality number five. Finally, and quickly, reality number six, the temple and light picture the glory of God and the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth forever. There will be no more temple and no more light as we have known temples and light. Why? Again, listen to these words from Revelation 21 and 22. I saw no city, excuse me, I saw no temple in the city for the temple. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Those are six realities that the themes of the temple and light picture, portray. And I'd like to conclude with one final scripture that ties together the temple and light themes for us. You don't need to turn there, just listen. First Peter 2. I mentioned that passage earlier when I mentioned that the church is God's temple. I mentioned First Peter 2 as one of the four texts for that. What, what I didn't mention is that it also connects the temple theme to the light theme. So listen to these two sentences from First Peter 2. You, church, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So the church is a temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So church, you are God's temple and you get to proclaim the excellencies of God for calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll be doing that forever and we get to do that now. Let's do that now by praying together and then singing. So pray with me. Thank you, Father, for brilliantly writing the Bible, for planning history with purposeful sovereignty. Thank you for the themes of the temple and light in the Bible's storyline. Thank you that Jesus is the true temple and the true light. Thank you that we, the church as your temple, 
get to proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.